right, friends, Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason, and uh, thank you for being part of our show today. I, uh, I'm i just kind of still amped up from my immediately prior conversation with Frank Turek. Uh, of course, many of you know that though you get these two hours separated by a couple of days, I'm doing them back-to-back, and uh, it was uh, really interesting talking with Frank about the re-release of his book, Correct, not politically correct, in which he's got a lot of information there about uh, about transgenderism and uh, amazing, excellent. I have in my hands right here uh, <laughs> a new book. Actually, this is the uh, ARC, the Advanced Review Copy of Street Smarts. So that means people who have, are reviewing the book or they're in a position position to do an interview or something like that uh, in the future, we send this out to them. So the influencers list, they'll be available to you, uh, what, the second week of September. But it's kind of nice just to see this book here. Subtitled, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. So it's a sequel to the, uh, the tactics book, and it's meant to focus especially on the third use of questions, or the third part of the game plan, if you're familiar with the tactics book. If you haven't read the tactics book, you'll still be able to use this, because I review the vital material and actually expand on some of those concepts that are in tactics in a way that I didn't include in tactics. So it'll expand on that, It'll you'll be able to review, and then go right into the, the third use of the uh, tactical approach, the third step of the game plan, and that is to use questions uh, to make a point, in particular, in this case, to expose expose a weakness or a flaw. And then I just take a a series of issues, which um, uh, are the kinds of things that, as a follower of Christ, you'll be encountering on a regular basis, and I start with atheism because this is the most foundational issue. Whether or not there's a God is the the decisive starting point for any worldview, okay? Whether we are our own or we belong to someone else, okay? Um, and depending on how you answer that question, you're going to go in radically different directions, okay? But I start with that and have a few chapters on that. The challenges of atheism, that uh, the kinds of challenges atheism makes on Christianity, and what's wrong with those challenges. So I want to give you the foundational information about where the errors are. And then, okay, how do we take the knowledge of the errors, in the case of atheism, and, and parlay that knowledge into a conversation, and a conversation that starts with a question. And the question is meant to move in a particular direction to expose the weakness or the flaw. Okay, so I got two chapters on atheism, then I have one on the problem of evil. And by the way, the problem of evil, that chapter I titled Atheism's Fatal Flaw. Evil is atheism's fatal flaw. It isn't theism's fatal flaw. It's atheism's fatal flaw. And then I have chapters after that on, let me look at the contents, (laughs) Um, on uh, uh, Jesus, the Son, uh, the Son of God, Jesus, the Savior of the world, uh, the Bible, 
uh, and problems people find with Scripture. I have abortion. I have marriage, sex, and uh, gender. Uh, I have God the science stopper. Those, all of those standard areas where people currently are raising challenges. I try to pick them apart a little bit. So this is my best attempt as a, at a general apologetics book dealing with those issues, but I, I didn't want to write just a general apologetics book. I wanted to uh, inform you about those things, but also in the context of employing them in the tactical game plan so you can actually move forward productively in conversations with people uh, using the questions to expose the weakness or the flaw. So lots of dialogues in here as I look at the content and then look at the, uh, the questions or offer the questions that will lead you into a productive dialogue and give you an idea how this can play out. Of course, um, engaging other people on these things is not not always tidy. Uh, it frequently isn't. It usually isn't, I guess. Sometimes things go really smoothly, much more smoothly with a tactical approach. That's been my experience. Much easier, okay? But even so, you never know where these conversations are going to end up. But if you get an idea of what the problems are, basically, with some of these kinds of challenges, and then you have an idea in your mind of how you might prosecute a critique of those challenges using questions, then you just follow your instincts. You get going. And uh, that's what the book is meant to do. It's bigger than anything I've ever written before, 85,000 words, 300 pages to the, to the number <laughs> of the standard material. That's the acknowledgments, the last page, 300, and then I got my notes, of course. So there's a lot here. And uh, those of you who are familiar with tactics, we've got, actually received a number of requests to do something more just like this. And we got the requests when I was in the midst of writing this book, so it was good to hear people wanted more. How can I use the tactical approach on specific issues that I'm faced with? I gave some examples in the original book and uh, in the 10th anniversary edition of Tactics, but now I've expanded on that. So it's a great one-two punch. And incidentally, they are available now for pre-order. Okay, so you can go to Amazon.com. Best thing is just to type in my name, K-O-U-K-L, and then Street Smarts. If you just write Street Smarts, you might get lots of odds and ends that uh, you'll have to sort through before you find uh, this particular title. But uh, love to have you sign up in advance and have it delivered. We'll be talking about this book more and more as time goes on, and I'm already getting conversation, or rather interviews in the queue here uh, to talk about this, because I think it's going to be a tremendous help to help followers of Christ navigate. Now, there is a detail that I do talk about in the book that I want to mention right now that it has broad application about your conversations with others about spiritual matters. And when I when I talk about the tactical approach, I make a statement at the beginning of my presentation that actually is a little shocking to people, I think, at first, and I have to cash it out a little bit so they can see where I'm going. And the statement is that I never have it as a goal. When I get in a conversation with somebody that I, I hope will have a spiritual impact, I never have it as a goal to lead that person to Christ. In fact, I don't even have it as a goal, necessarily, to get to the gospel. Now, do I want them to come to Christ? Of course I do. 
Is the gospel necessary? Absolutely. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The problem is, is that we are living in a time and culture much different than when I became a Christian during the Jesus movement. This September, I'll have my 50th anniversary, or birthday, if you will, as a follower of Christ. And uh, the world has changed a lot in 50 years. Uh, Massively, in the last 10 years, 15 years, I mean, really, it's just just amping up. Everything is moving so fast now. And it makes it more and more challenging for followers of Christ to engage thoughtfully in discussions with other people. And one of the challenges is that the gospel is no longer simple. Now, of course, you can characterize the gospel in a simple, straightforward fashion. Paul does so in 1 Corinthians, what, 15, I think. Uh, And others might sum it up in different ways. But the problem is not in the simplicity of the truth. The problem is in the way people understand the simple truth of the gospel. Fifty years ago, during the Jesus movement, if you saw the movie, uh, what was it called? The Jesus Revolution, you got a pretty clear picture. I didn't see it myself, but I've heard from other people. Um, You get a pretty clear picture of the dynamism that was involved, especially on the West Coast, especially in Southern California, that was happening in hot spots all over the country, on the East Coast, in Chicago, up in Seattle, um, even in, you know, middle America. But Southern California was the epicenter of this. Uh, there was a message that went out that was a fairly straightforward message um, that, that in some ways was in keeping with the times, in other ways it was by contrast to the times that um, many people embraced. And I remember as a new Christian going out on the beach uh, in Waikiki two summers in a row, 74 and 75, and summer outreach projects, and we had the four spiritual laws that we use as a tool to communicate with people, and um, it worked. The simple gospel, the simple message, people understood it, and they received it. Okay, that was 50 years ago. Now, the gospel still is simple, but it is not understood and heard in the same way now as it was before, because the culture actually had a an understanding, by and large, of what those words that we were using to characterize the good news about Jesus, what they meant. Uh, sin, salvation, substitutionary death, Jesus died for your sins, um, believe him as Savior and Lord. All of these had s- substance to the listeners, by and large. Okay, it doesn't mean they believed it, but at least they understood what you meant. Now you talk about Jesus being the Savior of the world, that is, he is the one and the one and only. In the minds of many people, that's hate speech. Okay, uh, they they uh, that's grotesque to suggest that one religion is the true religion. How intolerant, how narrow-minded, how arrogant. Of course, they don't understand why the claim is made, how it is that Jesus is the only one that solves the problem that must be solved. But part of that is because a lot of Christians don't understand it either. And this is really important for us as followers of Christ to have a grasp of these things in order to explain them to others. But what we have to do is spend a lot more time explaining than we ever had to do. We have to do more of what Francis Schaeffer 
used to call pre-evangelism. Okay, now I I I don't think of it as pre so much. I think of it all as as a as a whole, as it were, and whether we're offering the gospel for the sake of somebody making a decision about it, that would be kind of a harvesting mode, or whether we're we're just preparing people or helping them to understand or disabusing them of false ideas about the gospel, whatever. That's the gardening mode, which is where I think most of the work needs to be done, not just in this age, but any age. Gardening, 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 tilling, weeding, that kind of thing. And when the harvest is ready, it, it's easy to come in. Okay, uh, you bump against a ripe fruit, it falls into the basket. Okay, it's the gardening that takes the time. And I spend quite a bit of time, a whole chapter on gardening versus harvesting in the new Street Smarts book. But there's something else here, too, that's tied to what I've just said, and it has, has to do with a passage that I've read many, many times in the past, and you, you have heard sermons on in the past. Uh, yet it has a phrase in the passage that I had, I had never really seen before. I'd read it, but it, it never occurred to me the significance of that phrase or sentence or whatever in this passage. And of course, I'm sure this has happened to you before. You've read through things a number of times. And then at a certain point, you see something you did not see before that had already always been there. And this is what happened to me. Now, this didn't alter my way of engagement. What it did is offer affirmation to an observation that I'd already made and the one I've been talking about, that the culture has changed, and because the culture has changed, our way of communicating needs to change as well, or else there will not be understanding. Now, what I didn't say was the gospel needs to change. That doesn't change. A lot of people want to change the gospel. They want to change the good news to something else because the good news isn't so good anymore to a whole lot of people, because the good news entails a shift in worldview that puts God or Jesus on the throne. I, I say Jesus on the throne or God on the throne. That's the language of the four spiritual laws, and that's a good point. It puts God on the throne and takes us off. And a lot of folks don't want that. They don't want to bend the knee. And so uh, the gospel is not good news to them. Um, they need a broader context to see how it all fits together. And this brings me to a parable that Jesus told in the Gospels, and it's the parable itself that I had read many times and didn't see one segment of the parable. All right? And that parable is the parable of the sower. Now, this appears at least twice in the Synoptics. I'm going to read to you from Matthew's account, Matthew 13, verses 19 through 23. Now, remember how Jesus often would comport himself with regards to parables. He would tell a parable, and people would go, huh, what's that all about? Including the disciples. They didn't get it. But when Jesus was in private with them, he would explain what the parable actually meant. And that's what we have in the parable of the sower 
who goes about sowing seed. The seed falls on four different types of ground, and there are four different types of result of the seed that falls on the ground. If you recall, the, the first seed falls on the road, okay? It's a hard surface, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, the, the seed does not take root. Um, it doesn't have a, a way of germinating because it's hard ground. And so the birds come and pick the seed up and fly away with it. Now, when Jesus explains this to the disciples, he tells them that the seed, of course, is the Word of God, the gospel, the good news, and uh, and the hard ground is a certain type of listener. The birds are the devil. He snatches the seed away because of something about the listener. Now, the way I'd thought about this before is, oh yeah, hard ground, hard head. <laughs> That's not too hard. You, you, you speak the words to somebody in complete rebellion, and the words just bounce off the thick skull, right? Makes sense, and they bounce off, and the devil takes them away, and they go on uninfluenced, unaffected by that, because it never entered in. And that's just the way some people are. They're just hard-headed. But that is not the way Jesus characterizes it. And this is the part that surprised me when I saw this, having not seen it before. And in the Matthew's account of this particular parable, starting in verse 19, this is the way Jesus explains the first circumstance. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the seed that's scattered, in this case, on the hard ground, and here's the phrase that I hadn't heard before, or I hadn't, hadn't registered with me as such. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. It's curious, he didn't say what's bouncing off his skull. There is a sense in which these words go in to the person. The heart uh, 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 in, in biblical characterization is not like we think of it now. The heart is the seat of the emotions. But it's the, it's the center of the being. Okay, the bowels were the seat of the emotion, I think, in biblical times. That was the body part associated with emotion. Uh, when Proverbs, I think it says, or guard your heart, it doesn't mean guard your emotions. It means guard yourself, your thinking, your mind. Now, that entails guarding your emotions, but... And so what Jesus is saying here is that message went in. That landed but there was no understanding. And because it landed, and there was no understanding, then it became, you know, fodder for the devil. It just, it just, food for the devil. He just snatched it away. Gone. No root there at all. Actually, the second kind of ground, there's no root, but obviously this didn't even, even start. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now, what this tells me is that it is our obligation as followers of Christ and as ambassadors for Christ to speak in a way that the message is coherent and understandable. 
Now, that doesn't mean they're going to get it. But sometimes the problem is not with them, it's with us. We have not spoken in a coherent way. And this is why in the tactics book, 10th Anniversary Edition, I have a a mini-tactic that's called Watch Your Language. And I'm not talking about using coarse words or something like that. I presume you're watching that. I'm talking about the spiritual language that we employ in communicating spiritual things. And this is the kind of language that is not understood by the world. And, for example, we encourage people to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. I I honestly believe that the rank-and-file non-Christian only hears religious noise when they hear those words. They do not know, really, what we're asking them to do when we're asking them to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. I don't use that language. I don't use it because it doesn't communicate. And if it doesn't communicate and somebody responds to that appeal, we shouldn't be surprised when two months or six months or a year or even two years later, whatever, these people are not not around anymore. They're gone. I don't want people to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. I want them to trust Jesus, to forgive them, and then I want them to follow Jesus forever <laughs> and not stop, ever, okay? Trust Him, follow Him. Okay, now, of course, if I am talking to somebody, I'm going to give more background to those, even those phrases, so that those phrases are intelligible to the person I'm talking with. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to believe, but if they don't believe, at least they are not believing in something that has clearly been communicated, and they are. it's not the case that they're not believing because they didn't get it. It's my job to be clear with them. <clears throat> by contrast, by the way, in that parable, <clears throat> pardon me, and here we read a couple of verses down where Jesus, in verse 23 of Matthew 19, I'm sorry, 13, verse 23 of Matthew 13, Jesus looks at the last soil, and here's what he says, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears and understands it. This is the one who hears and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, 30, 60, 100-fold. And so Jesus bookends this concept at the beginning with the first type of soil and at the end with the last kind of soil. Both are related to understanding. First, no understanding. The last bears fruit, understanding. And in, in the two in between, they're problematic, of course. You know, there's no root. And so when difficulty comes up, then they just, you know, wilt, no root. Um, or uh, they're, the, the briars grow up around them, and they're no longer—they're not fruitful because of the cares of the world. You know, um, but there's nothing about understanding that Jesus mentions there. He does mention it at the beginning. They don't get it at all, no understanding. And at the end, it's the understanding that is instrumental in bearing fruit. That's our job. It's God's job to save, no question there. It is our job to communicate with understanding. And uh, minimally, I think that means, first of all, but we understand so that we can find ways of expressing it that's not freighted with religious language. 
yet communicates uh, that communicates clearly what we're trying to communicate. And then, if people want to reject or walk away or get angry or call your names, at least they're understanding what they're rejecting. And I guarantee you there will be no genuine receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord that endures because of regeneration if there is no understanding. It just is not going to happen. It's a necessary precondition. It's not sufficient, but it certainly is necessary. And that means it's necessary for us to be thoughtful about how we communicate the, tr- the only truth that can save. Okay, friends, let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back with some of your questions on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All right, friends, uh, we're going to do open mic calls here, and uh, those are calls that you guys have called in on at a different time. So I don't interact with you personally, but we can hear from you what your question actually is. If you want to leave a question for an open mic call, there's two ways you can do it. One, go to our website, to our homepage, where it says podcasts and uh, live broadcasts, and then there's a section there for open mic. You can just follow the prompts. Um, if you'd like to dial it right in and call it in, so to speak, same kind of thing, but it's on the phone. And that phone number is 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR. Uh, by the numbers, that's 857 342 Eight seven. Okay, so we've got uh, Mark uh, Johnson in the queue here. We ready with that? Hello, Mark. Hi, my name is Mark Johnson, and uh, Greg got a question. I was an atheist. I came to AA. I got found God, 
And from within a, a some Christians, uh, the hounds of heaven got a hold of me and hmm. whatever. I, I became a follower of Christ. And my question is, and we, we've had kind of discussions before, I think, but uh, here's my I, I kind of I'm at a point here. So if I go to AA meetings, like people becoming spiritual as a beginning to believe in some kind of God, um, I I want some thoughts on that because you you don't and I, and I am grateful for this. You don't pull punches. I mean, hmm. we have talked to this, and every time I start talking uh, generically or something. Um, your hackles raise, which uh, I assume is uh, wisdom from you. I'm not. Uh, I'm not criticizing. I'm just. I'm just curious about some thoughts and about helping somebody to get sober, but leading them to Christ, but being kind of not over over the top, uh, like encouraging, not discouraging, but. You know, sooner or later, you got to tell somebody, "Hey, man, that God of yours is—you're not going to go to heaven. That's mm-hmm. not the true God." I mean, some thoughts about that. If I'm making sense, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, if you get a chance to, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, some thoughts on this uh, subject. Thank you. Have a good day. Stay fishing. I'm going today. <laughs> Uh, hope you have a good vacation, and uh, I will see you when I'm looking at you. Bye. All right. Hey, Mark, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, this is something I've thought about uh, quite a bit regarding Alcoholics Anonymous AA and other programs that are like it. Um, and there's there's kind of an upside and a downside, a good side and a bad side. Uh, first of all, the general approach that is taken does help a lot of people get sober. And if they get sober— even though they don't get saved, something good has happened in their temporal existence. So I don't want to be dismissive of people who are able to get sober and be better husbands and be better fathers, be better friends and workers and everything, even though they never become a Christian. Obviously, becoming a believer is actually more important than getting sober when you think of the consequences. Of course, the two are supposed to go together, and uh, the Bible does have a lot to, negative to say about drunkenness. But the key thing is that sinners find forgiveness first, not deliverance from a particular kind of malady or sin in their lives, okay, without Christ. And because the fact is that even people without Christ and without the Holy Spirit can bring improvement to their life and can overcome certain maladies. What they can't overcome is the thing that's at the heart of all of these maladies, and that is sin, capital S. They can overcome some sins, but they are not going to get victory over sin. That is the tendency to rebel in particular ways against God. And uh, that would be in this life, as it were, and then overcome the penalty for rebellion and the sin in the next life. So I just want to put those things in proper perspective without at the same time somehow being uh, uh, dismissive or dissing the benefit that programs like this can bring to individuals in a temporal sense, 
all right? Now, as I understand how AA works, it begins with an admission that we are powerless to fix the problems in our life, and we have to appeal, and this is where it gets a little confusing for me, appeal to God or appeal to the higher power. Now, higher power is a more generalized way of putting it, although there's only one higher power that's going to make a difference, and it's God. The beginning of restoration or health is uh, a, an acknowledgement, I can't do this on my own. I have a problem. I can't do it. It's an act of humility, all right? And an acknowledgement of this, this proclivity, this habit that brings bad on them and others, okay? And it's an acknowledging the reality of it and their need for help. And they get help from the community, but the core here is getting this help from beyond the human community, from the higher power. Now, here's where the difficulty comes in, and I think this is your concern, Mark. Um, in your case, of course, you make this acknowledgement, you reach up to the higher power, which is God, and there's a connection. You believe in God, trusting God, and the ways that God has uh, ordained for you to overcome the slavery to this sin and the guilt for all your sins, okay? And that's through Jesus Christ. So you take this full full circle, but not everybody in the group does. And it has to do with a flaw in the system. <clears throat> and maybe this is the kind of flaw that you can um, talk to people about who have, in a certain sense, been taken in by it. When I say taken in, I don't think there's anything that is malicious going on with leadership here, but it's just a flaw in this approach. Remember, the appeal is that you can't do this yourself. You need help. You need the help from the higher power. But then there's the qualification, and the qualification is something along the lines of, we're not talking about what higher power. We're not trying to give it any more definition because we don't want to get too parochial about it. But whatever your higher power is, whatever you understand the higher power to be like. And so every individual, in my understanding here, can characterize the higher power the way they want. And of course, this sounds really broad-minded. It sounds really tolerant. We're not saying you have to believe in my God. You can believe in your God. They can believe in their God. And, of course, the God slash higher power that they're believing in has different characteristics. It can't all be the same because they're different. All right? But nevertheless, that's where you're going to draw your capability from to get help to overcome the problem that you can't deal with on your own. Now, the problem here, of course, is if you make the higher power kind of whatever— instead of specifying the higher power is the only higher power like that there is, and it's the only higher power that's going to help you. It is the God of all. And you appeal to the God of all, then He is able to help you because He is real and has the power and ability to do it. That's the God that can help you. If you don't specify that, and here I'm just talking broadly now, if one doesn't specify that it's only the true God that can help you, 
but whatever you want to make it, then the whatever you want to make it God turns out not to be a real God, but a psychological trick to help you, watch this now, fix yourself. If the higher power is whatever, and it's relativistic, it's not, you know, the God of all creation, but it's whatever you want to make it, then the source of God, the idea of God, is just coming from yourself. It isn't an external God who has power, but it is your internal perception, whatever. That's the difference between objectivism and relativism. And if it's just your whatever higher power, then we're not talking about the real world. We are talking about something that you do inside of yourself to trick yourself into thinking you're getting help, but you can't get help from an imaginary source. If you do end up getting help, what you're getting help from is yourself by using some kind of mental trickery. Now, they're not going to characterize it as mental trickery. The point I'm making is this is what it comes down to. So the question is, you realize you're helpless, yes, and you need help. Okay, what or who is going to help you? Outside of human encouragement, which is part of the program, of course, what, what are you reaching up for? If what you're reaching for is not true, then how are you getting help? Well, I'm just drawing on my higher power. What's your higher power? Whatever I decide. Okay, so you are playing a mental trick on yourself, right? You are tricking yourself into believe something that doesn't exist, some kind of imaginary higher power, so that you can get through this and solve your problem. But don't you begin by saying you couldn't do that? So if the higher power turns out to be whatever, and the pursuit and, and explaining it or structuring the program in that way is a way to be more so-called tolerant to other people and make encourage more people to come in, well, now what you're doing is a, you're, you're, you're engaging in a contradictory enterprise. You're saying you can't do it yourself, and then you're saying, yes, I could do it myself as long as I trick my mind into believing there's someone else there, out there helping me. The only way to avoid that is to do one of two things. Say, I can do it myself if I'm clever enough. Or to say, I can't do it myself, and the only way I can get help is from a real God. Not just a higher power, but the God of all the world who is there for me. And that God looks a very particular way and has a very particular plan or way of solving the problem you face. And that's through His Son, Jesus, who paid for your crimes against God and will regenerate you through His Spirit when you put your trust in Him, so that you become a new person on the inside by God's actual power, not by some trickery, so that the outer man can begin to change because the inner man has been transformed. And that's how it works. If I were in your p position, Mark, that's the, that's the direction I'd go. Um, there might be more to say about that. Uh, I'm just not familiar enough with the program uh, to give more thought. But um, the main thrust of this is that 
if you can't help yourself, the only way you can be helped is by some real existing higher power, the higher power, the God of all creation of the universe, doing for you what you can't do for yourself. And in the Christian sense, that's multiple things. It's not just reforming your life. It's reforming your life because there's regeneration that has taken place, a miracle of rebirth, in virtue of the fact that you put your trust in Jesus to forgive you of all of your sins, not just some, to fix your entire life. That's the right avenue. Anything else is just going to be fantasy. All right, there you go. Um, Mark, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more of your questions on Stand to Reason. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos— Consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? you may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. I'm looking at some of the questions here, uh, deciding what to do next. You know, and sometimes questions arise uh, because of a misunderstanding of of fundamental uh, truth of Christianity. And uh, sometimes uh, that's about, when I say fundamental, it's very fundamental, and that's the grace of God. Um, And so I'm going to deal with a a question here about uh, divorce and about homosexuality here. Um, if I am understanding the uh, the question accurately, th- it's based on a misunderstanding, and maybe I'll be able to clear that up. So this is Brad uh, asking a question about about being gay. Hi, Greg. Uh, my question is: Can a gay person go to heaven? And is uh, being gay uh, sin? Um, it, if that's the case, can a divorced person go to heaven? And is is being divorced a sin, and are those two equal? Uh, are those two sins the same? Uh, in in that we're not able to go to heaven if we have committed either of those sins. 
Okay, so thank you, Brad. And um, the, the, uh, the, the foundational concern here is whether there are um, particular sins that are not forgivable. Now, there is a, a, an unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's, um, it's a strange passage that's hard to figure out what Jesus is referring to. And some have suggested that uh, it could only be committed in the presence of Jesus, because in that circumstance, Jesus was talking about people who had observed the evidence of his messianic uh, office, miracles that he performed, and then they attributed the miracles to the devil. And Jesus says, this is a blasphemy of the Spirit that will not be forgiven in this life or the life to come. Um, so I'm just going to set that aside for a moment, because the other the kinds of sins we're talking about right here do not fall into this category, a gay person or a divorced person, okay? <clears throat> now, uh, so um, now I want, in a general sense, let's work from the general to the specific, Paul makes a statement, and I'm not sure if it's in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, but it's the first chapter of one of those two books. And he said there that he was the greatest of sinners. And the reason he was the greatest of sinners is because he persecuted the Church of God. He was responsible for the deaths of Christians. Um, now, why is that significant? Well, he tells us, he says, God forgave me, the greatest of sinners, to demonstrate that he can forgive anybody. If the greatest of sinners is forgiven, then the lesser sinner can be forgiven, too. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. And, uh, and, and that ought to inform how we answer a question like this. Um, can a person, well, here, the way, Brad, you put it was a gay person, and then you said a divorced person, okay? Homosexuality is a sin. Uh, divorce, in many cases, is a sin, probably in most cases, at least on my taking of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, all right? The question is, can that sin be forgiven? And the answer is yes. Of course. Why not? Um, to say otherwise is to say, given the blood of Christ shed on the cross for sin, that a particular sin is enormous enough to cancel out the blood of Christ. But if the blood of Christ is there to cancel sin, how can sin cancel the blood of Christ? Now, normally I make that statement with regards to suicide, because there are many who believe that suicide is the unforgivable sin, and one of the reasons it's not forgivable is because, obviously, you cannot repent from it. You can't have done it and then say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, please forgive me, because <laughs> once you commit suicide, that's it. Game is over. And this is where I make this point. Same one about Paul, who is the greatest of sinners. Um, 
how can, if the blood of Christ is meant to cancel sin, how can a sin cancel the blood of Christ? The answer is it can't. Even suicide, even being divorced, even being gay. Okay, when I say being gay, this is the language, a gay person. And so I'm going to strain at the language here a little bit. Um, Brad, you mentioned a gay person. Well, a gay person is someone who is same-sex attracted. That doesn't mean that they committed homosexual sin. Being same-sex attracted is evidence of the fall. It falls under the influence of the fall. Okay, some want to say being same-sex attra- attracted is itself a sin, and others, you know, wouldn't would say giving into the temptation is a sin. But I, I and I don't, I'm not sure what to say about that distinction. But I will say a, because I want to be able to protect people from uh, being guilty of sin when they are resisting temptation to sin that the temptation isn't a sin itself, but that there are circumstances where one would even be tempted to do a sin in virtue of desires, fleshly desires they have, is certainly a result of the fall. So it fits in there somewhere. But um, a divorced person is someone who has committed the act of divorce. It's a little different category, where a gay person, I'm using Brad's language here, a gay person it's not. It's ambiguous whether they've engaged in behavior that's sinful. Uh, for persons who are divorced illicitly, inappropriately, <clears throat> in a way that's not justified by Scripture, well, that act is completed. Now, the question is whether a person who has a same-sex attraction can be forgiven. Well, what God is calling us to, and, and uh, Christopher Ewan, Y-U-A-N, um, makes this point very clearly. He wrote a book about it. I think it's called, I'll think of it. Maybe you'll tell me in a moment. Christopher Ewan's book on holy, holiness. No, that's not the new one. Holy sexuality. Thank you, Amy. Holy sexuality. What, what people who are same-sex attracted are, are called to is not heterosexuality, but rather to purity, sexual purity. And that's, with, that, that's possible. With God's help, okay. What uh, what a person who's illicitly divorced is called to um, is can, is living a holy life after the sin they've committed, and that you know the other questions may come to mind about this, which I'm not going to resolve right now. But can those sins or those sinful conditions, as the case may be, can they be forgiven? Of course, they can be forgiven. Yes, of course they can go to heaven uh, if you've committed sin in any area. In fact, you will commit sin in all co- sorts of areas, and you will continue to commit sins in all sorts of areas until you breathe your last breath. That's why the cross is so important. Remember that passage in uh, Psalm is it 130? Maybe Amy can correct me here. Psalm 130, I think. It says, Lord, if you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if God's keeping track in the sense that he is going to ultimately hold our sins against us, and that's the standard, no one's going to stand, even the holiest among us. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. 
unless your holiness and righteousness exceeds that of the holiest people in that land, the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. That's an impossible standard. So if the standard we're being judged by is our behavior, we are all lost. But then the psalmist continues and he says, but there is forgiveness with you that you might be praised. Yeah, that's Psalm 130. Third verse, fourth verse, something like that. I want that on my tombstone. Because that's my life. I know I need the grace of God all the time. I'm not divorced. I'm not gay. I got all kinds of other problems, though, moral problems. And that's what I need Jesus for every minute of every day. There is no sin that can cancel out the blood of Christ. It is rather the blood of Christ that cancels out sin. Now, this raises another question. What if a person is living a sinful lifestyle? That is, a, an actively homosexual lifestyle, or in, in their divorce and remarriage, there is no sense at all, and of course I can't judge divorce at large because some divorces are legitimate before God and some are not. <clears throat> But for those who would just speculate or stipulate, those that are not legitimate before God, what about that person? Well, it's just like any sin. If you, on the one hand, if you are a believer, if you are regenerate, according to Paul, you are in the Spirit by definition, irrespective of your sins that you you encounter on a daily basis. Every Christian sins every day of their life. But there is a difference between being in the flesh and in the Spirit. And this is in Romans 8, and Paul makes a distinction. And I think the way I like to characterize it is what Paul is talking about. He's describing a trajectory. Those who are in the flesh, that is, they are living a life that is characterized by fleshly behavior. This is how they live, and this is the way the whole world lives outside of the body of Christ. They all live according to the flesh. The flesh is ruling them. The flesh is guiding them. They are giving into the flesh. Maybe not every single opportunity, but on balance, that's what they're doing. Their trajectory is according to the flesh. And Paul says, those who are according to the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible for them to do so. But there's another trajectory, and he says, but you are not in the flesh if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if he doesn't, then you're none of his. So the distinction between being in the flesh and in the Spirit, according to Paul, we use those words in different ways, but according to Paul, the distinction is being unregenerate and regenerate. And if you are regenerate, what are you doing? You are in the habit of putting to death the deeds of the body. And this is what Paul calls being led by the Spirit. You want to know what led by the Spirit means? There it is. It's not nudge, nudge, hint, hint. I think God is telling me. That's not what Paul means. There in Romans 8 and also Galatians 5, the only two places where the phrase led by the Spirit is used, it means the same thing in both cases. So what we have here is a believer who is in the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is in them in virtue of their regeneration, is struggling and fighting against sin, and by the Spirit, 
by the Spirit's leading, working in their lives, is in the process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. The person who is in the, in the, in the flesh, not regenerate, they don't care about the deeds of the flesh. It doesn't matter to them. They are living in them. So if you're a person who is claiming to be a Christian, and you are living a morally profligate life, the sins don't matter to you. You're just doing whatever. You can sit in church all day long. You can call yourself a Christian and all you want. Your deeds are telling a different story. If you are living like hell, you are probably going there. That's the simple way of looking at it. A person who is genuinely regenerate cannot do that. I call this the Christian curse. Haven't used that phrase in a long time. You cannot keep living in sin and enjoying it, because the Holy Spirit is going to lead you hard in a different direction. Okay? And so, yes, people who are guilty of of homosexual sin and the sin of divorce in those cases when it is a sin can they be forgiven of course but if you are pursuing a sinful lifestyle on a regular basis you are probably not regenerate you are on a have a different trajectory not according to the spirit brad i hope that answer helps and i hope it helps a lot of you as well greg kokel here for stand a reason give them heaven friends bye-bye